0: Hi everyone, this is Ali Hassan. I wanted to let you know that for the next few weeks, we are going to be re-airing some of our favorite episodes from our Doctor vs. Comedian library. I hope you enjoy them.
1: Today we'll be discussing actors faking accents, such as the character of Ray Bhutani on Schitt's Creek and Apu on The Simpsons. And we'll be discussing so-called miracle cures in medicine and how they may relate to distrust of doctors. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be getting Asif's thoughts that's me, on miracle cures in medicine and how that may relate to distrust of medicine and physicians. But first, we'll be talking about actors faking accents. But before that, Ali, I wanted to read you a DM we got from somebody.
0: Uh, Let me prepare myself emotionally. Is it hateful or, uh, or helpful? It's giving you some constructive feedback. Okay.
1: Okay, here we go. So, the Twitter handle is at Mac Brad. That's the Twitter handle of this person. And they said, is Ali in love with Shonda Rhimes? Because they said in our first five episodes, you mentioned her name several times. And then last week in our Chadwick Boseman episode, you mentioned Shonda Rhimes again. So please answer. Inquiring minds would
0: like to know. I love Shonda Rhimes and she's a personal hero. Take that. That's it. That's it. That's all I got to say about it. There's nothing constructive about it. But I shall not. I shan't message her again uh, for the next five episodes. We'll, we'll be on a little bit of a, a, a rhymes hiatus and then back to the rhymes. I'll be spitting rhymes again in uh, five episodes from now. Be ready for it.
1: So Ali, let's start with my topic for you. You know, I started thinking about this a few months ago when I read an article about an actor who you may know, Rizwan Manji. He plays the character of Ray Butani on the hit show Shits Creek. Amazing show. I loved it. I think it got a lot of people through the pandemic. It was such a great, uplifting show. But people did raise concerns because the actor in question does not normally have an Indian accent. But then on the show, he does have an Indian accent, and he said that the the actor, when he was interviewed in some of these articles, said, you know, he actually just chose to do that accent. He wasn't given any specific direction. But it raises this idea of South Asian actors being asked to put on accents for TV shows and movies. So a couple questions for you. I kind of want to know what you think about this topic as a whole, but let's start with have you been asked to do accents like this
0: in the past? I have been. And so Aziz Ansari is the first name that comes up to in my mind when we talk about this, because I think he influenced a number of people. In in his show called Master of None, he does a there's an episode about this very thing. And there is some humiliation involved in it sometimes for for, for certain actors. And I think Aziz's take on it is. No, no accents ever. We don't need accents. He went even further. His character in Parks and Rec, now I don't know if this is the character he was given or if he had to fight for this, but it was Tom Haverford, right? Like it's a very South Indian looking guy and his name is Tom and his last name Haverford. And that's, I think he thrives in this idea of uh, colorblind casting and no accents. And that is fine. And even though I'm a, I'm a fan of Aziz's, I think in that particular regard, I don't agree with him. I don't agree that there should be no accents. I think there is a time and place for it. What is that time and what is that place? You may wonder. I mean, I can't speak to Rizwan Manji's uh, motivations. I have a lot of respect for Rizwan. This guy's an OG. As far as South Asian actors, He, I remember him from way back, a movie called American Desi, directed by a friend of mine named Piyush Pandya. He and Cal Penn and, and some other actors that I don't think went on to, some of them didn't even go on to act, but they didn't go on to to, to work as much or as proficiently. But him and Cal Penn started in this movie, American Desi, and, and went on and, and did a whole bunch of work. Uh, Cal Penn even worked for uh, you know former President Obama. But he's been on the scene for a long time. And I know he's probably been put in positions where he had to do an accent that he didn't want to do. This was his choice. And I you know, <laughs> I actually have that audition. I was asked to audition for this character as well. On Schitt's Creek. On Schitt's Creek, Ray Bhutani, East Indian real estate agent. He's the town's best and only real estate agent. He's eager, super cheerful, and intense. The accent was not required. For whatever reason, and actors make choices. You know, he made the choice to to, to have that accent. The situation becomes complicated when it's like, could that have been done without an accent? And is the accent there for the sake of... Of laughs. Are people laughing at the accent?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've seen the show. I don't really think so. And now when I think of the character Ray Butani, I think of this character that one Manji created. And I don't know. I can't separate him from the accent. I don't I don't think it's making fun of him. I don't think that ever happened in the show, as far as I remember. And in fact, I don't even think him being South Asian was a focus of any episode or anything like that. So at least in this case I didn't think so.
0: Well, I have had a situation and I I can't name the movie because people will find out who the director is and possibly verbalize their anger towards him. And I don't, I don't want to do that, but a director once had me do a character with an accent and I told him, I said, look, the audition didn't call for an accent. I asked my agent, are they looking for an accent? My agent said, well, do both. So I did both. And my wife is my reader. And she was like, oh, you're way better without the accent. I was like, I know I feel more grounded. I feel more real. And of course, they said, we'd like the accent. The day one on set, the day one on set, I asked this director, I said, listen, I make my living making people laugh without an accent. I don't know if this accent is necessary. I don't feel like it is. If it's a funny character, I do funny without an accent pretty much every day of my life. That is my career. So I can do it without the accent. I would almost rather do it. And he said, no, 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 no way, man. I love that. I love that. That's the best. And that was a very low moment for me but at the same time what does a guy in my position really do going back a number of years you know you, you can formally protest and there are people who are in that position but i'm not really in a position to lose how ma- how many ever thousands of dollars because in the end that that is what happens you you become a problematic person you become the person who's like oh day one on the set already causing this so there, you have to sort of weigh those personal choices. And people who are doing that on behalf of others, you, you don't need to really know the world that actors live in. You know, it's, it's not always that easy to just be, oh, I would have just said, I'm not doing it. It's not that simple. Now, on that same set, there was also a guy of Latino background, and he was doing a put on Latino accent. And both of us were joking about how this is such an embarrassment to our, <laughs> both our families and our ancestors. He even said, if my parents see this, they are going to slap me in the back of the head. Like, this is what we immigrated to this country for, so you can mock our accent. So we both did it begrudgingly. And later we found out, that director told us, or he told my, my Latino buddy, he said to him like, hey man, I want to tell you something. The producers saw both your characters and heard the accents and they were like, no, this is unwatchable. And I fought for you guys. I fought for you and I made sure you were in the movie. And we were like, thanks for nothing. Thanks, Johnny, because for both of us, that particular project didn't move the needle on our career. So we would have been actually happier with a paycheck and not having had that blemish on our records of having always had that project and that accent. So sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes you're a recent immigrant. And that brings me to Kim's Convenience. And and the needle has almost gone too far because in Kim's Convenience, people, mostly white liberals, if I'm being perfectly honest, mostly white liberals and then certain people of ethnic backgrounds. We're so upset that Paul Sun-Hyung Lee, who played Appa, who played the Korean father, who is the owner of a corner store, was doing this accent. And, you know, this is what happens. Sometimes you forget about the context of what we're all doing. Kim's Convenience was a play. For many years, it was a play in Toronto. It traveled across the country to great acclaim, and it became a TV show. It was about this couple who owns a corner store and the trials and tribulations of the couple, their children in the neighborhood and people in the neighborhood. You have to listen to what Paul has said about doing that accent. Like myself, was never keen on doing His own Korean accent. Never did it. Did Japanese accents, studied them, did Chinese, even Vietnamese characters, studied them, made sure he was being true to form. But every time he did his own, you know, family's Korean accent, he felt like he was being corny or hokey or hacky, whatever you want to call it. But as soon as he did Appa, he said, I literally transformed into my father. And it was no longer a source of shame, it was a tribute to my own father. I became my father, and it was a tribute to not just my father, but all immigrants who come here. And Paul talks about this very beautiful thing, man. It's very powerful. He said, these are characters. This is not a one-dimensional character with just an accent, and that's it. These are characters. These are people. He goes, I I feel like I'm representing all these immigrants who come here. They come here, they are smart. In many cases, they are skilled. They have a, a, a strong, intelligent opinions, and all that is dismissed because in their accent, they are not understood the same way, and they are regarded as dumber than they are because of this accent. Not only that, but they struggle themselves internally to communicate and voice themselves and and have themselves heard the way they do in their own language. The accent wipes that all away and and, and it makes for this, this struggle. And it's something that many, many immigrants go through. And we all know immigrants like that, where it's like, you know, once they change to a language that's not their own, they're not able to be understood or appreciated or respected in many cases. And so, Again, this is why Aziz, I'm very happy for him to be able to sort of move away from that. Tom Haverford is a success for so many immigrants that we could, but at the same time, I feel like there is a time and place for accents. And when it's done with respect and it's done uh, carefully and, and, and with great preparation and thought, it's, it's very valuable. And so, and
1: I, I mean, I agree with you, and I think it's what are the motives behind this, right? And, and and if your motives are genuine and true, and and you're just trying to explore the character who happens to have an accent, I, I think another example of, of a Korean accent is Stephen Yoon in Minari, which Oscar-nominated film. Similar thing is Stephen Yoon, you know, has a American accent, but of course he's playing this character who's who's immigrating here. Most of his dialogue, I should say, is in uh, is in Korean in the movie. So I, I think that's part of it. But then now I have this other question for you. So we're talking about specifically you doing a South Asian accent or some of these other actors doing a Korean accent, as the examples we've said. But what about someone who's not of a certain background doing another accent? So, you know, I, I, I don't know. Is that racist? So I'll just I'll throw an example out there. You know, my kids will sometimes do a British accent, you know, they'll ask for a, spot, a tea. And that's a horrible British accent I just did, so.
0: That's terrible. That's actually the insult right there, that you didn't do it properly. No, listen, my sister and I used to do that all the time. You know, you you're watching Monty Python and Benny Hill as a kid and whatever, and then it's like, dinner is served, and we would laugh at that all the time. Now, a couple of points here. Number one is the British have very thick skin. Number two, the British were a colonial empire of us. I mean, your children are actually putting a jab back at your colonial oppressors, so good for them. It's this idea of punching up and punching down, right? You're, whenever the opportunity arises to punch down, my feeling, especially in stand-up comedy, has always been to avoid that, you know? And, and the third thing that comes up here is this idea of the reason that, that people of color... Black people, Indigenous people, people of color are are trying so hard to get more work and more opportunities and better opportunities is because then you can be in a position where you make a choice whether you want to do an accent or not. White Hollywood does not care if I'm embarrassing myself and my own community. They don't. That's not a concern for them. They have other concerns. Profit being number one. But if enough people of color get opportunities to do work, we can say, like, listen, let me educate you on something. The other thing we were going to talk about today was this idea of Apu.
1: Okay. So let's let's go there then. So, yeah, this is the character of Apu Nahasapimapetalan from The Simpsons. Smooth. Yeah. You know, yeah I've right. been practicing that for, you know, 30 years or so. Yeah. This character is played by Hank Azaria, or was played by Hank Azaria, uh, who is a Caucasian man. And that's the way it's been since The Simpsons first premiered in 1990. And then in 2017, there was a documentary that came out by Hari Kondabulu, and it was called The Problem with Apu. And he basically discusses in that documentary the problem with Apu and the issues associated with having Hank Azaria play this character. What were your thoughts? I actually know you've interviewed Hari before and spoken to him.
0: Yeah, in 2017 on, on Q, which is an arts and culture show on, on our uh, national broadcaster, CBC, I chatted with Hari about this. And I went in a little bit defensive, to be honest, because it's, it's a little bit Hulu's fault. The way they framed it was as if Hari is like this sort of whiny Indian guy who's like, oh, this Indian character ruined my life. And, and that's not at all. Hari Kondabolu is an, an incredibly thoughtful and intelligent person. And I went in a little bit, you know, only having seen, because Hulu's not available, I wasn't able to see the, the final product at that time when I interviewed him. And it turns out that what he was really talking about was how much of a super fan he was of The Simpsons. Because my thoughts were like, hey, listen, man, we're doing okay. People can pronounce Hari Kondabolu. They can pronounce Kumail Nanjiani, Apurna Nacharla. These are all South Asian comics who are doing very well. We're in a good place. Like It's weird for us to be like, Apu ruined our lives because he didn't. He said, I'm not saying at all that Apu ruined my life. I'm saying that 30 years of The Simpsons, and I've loved that show for at least 20 years of the 30.'" it defined and and helped my comedy develop that show it's part of my 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 youth and my personality it's in my fiber that show but where's the growth where's the development of a character 30 years later and it's still the exact same guy over 30 years what is up who gotten maybe one and a half episodes devoted to him same sort of praying to the eight arms of this hindu god or goddess and blah, and just you know, the multiple children and all these tropes. And and I think that was his issue, number one, that give this character some growth. Come on. He goes, I'm bored. I'm just bored of Apu. And then, of course, the other issue was Hank Azaria voicing Apu. Yeah, we've come a long way. We are so, as South Asians, we are in every facet of society. Why do we have Hank Azaria, a non-South Asian man, Very, very talented actor, of course. Why do we have him doing this one? Clearly, we could have him. And it's not about denying Hank Azaria of a job. Hank Azaria voices six other characters on the show, for God's sake.
1: First of all, I do think Apu has been the focus of more than one and a half episodes, to be clear. And I'd say he's probably gotten as much of those standalone kind of episodes or focusing on him as, say, Chief Wiggum or Flanders. But I do agree with you. In those situations. Their ethnic background is not the focus of the episode or or the conflict that occurs. I agree with what you're saying about that. And, you know, Hank Azaria actually stepped down from the role in 2020. But I just want to take a step back. We look at these things in the era that they came out. So what I'm saying is, I don't think The Simpsons, I agree with Hari Kondibu. I I really do, now that I've seen his documentary and thought about it. I don't think it means you have to cancel the Simpsons or remove these old episodes from Disney plus where they're streaming. And I think you would need to take things in the context of when they occurred. And the example that I think about is one I know, you know, very well, which is Peter Sellers in the party.
0: In the problem with Apu, I think it's Cal Penn who says, I hate that movie. So I think Cal Penn was taunted in the schoolyard. With uh, hey, it's Cal, Birdie Num Num. So, of course, he's going to grow up hating that film. But <laughs> it's a very tricky one because Peter Sellers, A, is in brownface. That's not great to look at with today's lens. But, man, like, what an incredible... <laughs> Incredible actor. What Listen, is incredible My parents love
1: that movie. I mean, when it came out, they loved the party. And that's They're the thing. Indian people who immigrated to North America, just like this character did in the party. I mean... Absolutely.
0: He does a great job at portraying a comedic buffoon. That's the first thing, right? You talk about satire and clown and buffoonery. I mean, Peter Sellers is a master in that film. And yeah, even Hari Kondabolu says his parents had no problem with the party. They have no problem with Apu. And I think it's because you know they had real stuff to worry about. They have real discrimination and like jobs that they're not getting and stuff like that. So they're like, "This is a small, this is small fries. This is not a big issue." You know, my uncle uh, got attacked in an alleyway and 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 a a beer bottle bashed over the back of his head when he was in Chicago. Now is that guy going to care about Apu? Uh, You know, not really. These are our (laughs) maybe these are our first world problems. I don't know, but I think in the end. Hari had a point because Hank did step down and Hank also recently has said, this is why these conversations happen. Because Hank Azaria went to his kid's school, 17-year-old uh, son of his went to his school, and it was an Indian student that said, kids still call me Apu, and it's become like a, basically a racial slur. Right. Instead of saying an actual slur, they say Apu, which pretty much means the same thing and has the same sentiment. And, and Hank Azaria has gone on record to say, I feel like I should apologize to every Indian uh, and, and every yeah. South Asian for, for having voiced this character.
1: Yeah, he, he just said that. That was very recently on Dak Shepherd's armchair expert podcast. Uh and you can listen to the whole interview with Hank Azari there. So it's true. I mean, people say thank you come again in an Indian accent to you us, like well, you and I, and they don't mean that in a flattering way. You know? And so and and and, and again, I'm so happy he did this interview with Dak Shepherd and, and talked about this because that's what you want, right? You want to, Harry Jr. started this conversation and went on. I think perhaps there was a bit of resistance from Hank Azaria at the beginning if you read some of those early interviews in 2017, 2018. And then he stepped down and then he's kind of come around. These things take time. He put a lot of effort into this. You know, he's proud of his work and his comedy work. And I think instead, it doesn't that make much more sense. To have a dialogue and discussion and he asks people and has these co- important conversations as opposed to people just saying oh let's just cancel Hank area." right that is I think this is a much uh, more empathetic and reasonable way to approach things like this
0: communication and discussion who knew who knew that it would work All right, let's flip things around and talk about the medical world. if you were recently bothered by uh, something having to do with miracle cures. You want to talk about that?
1: Uh, yeah, this will probably be a bit of a rant on miracle cures. And I was thinking about this after our Dr. Oz episode and been thinking about that for the past few weeks. I am not saying this has anything to do with Dr. Oz. I am not talking about him. But I'm talking about this idea of miracle cures in medicine in general. So I'm going to tell you a couple stories, and I want to be very clear. I'll probably say it twice. All details have been changed to make the stories anonymous, so you don't know. So just trust me. Again, all the details have been changed to protect uh, anonymity. A couple years ago, I was seeing a two-year-old. Let's just say they were diagnosed with an incurable neurologic condition that would probably lead to their death okay so it's a very sad situation and we know from the scientific literature that there's no there's no treatment unfortunately in this case you know we can offer them comfort and but that's about it and the family in my conversations with them got very angry they're like you know what we've been on the internet we've been on um, social media and we found that there's these miracle cures and you're not even looking into it and you're not even considering this. Why would you deny this to our child? So, you know, obviously I listen to what they're saying, So you know, and, and then you kind of go through it and you do some research and you're like, no, there is no miracle cures. Like we know about this condition and there's no miracle cures. And, and just the anger that, that they have about this.
0: Did you know about this quote unquote miracle cure beforehand?
1: No. So I go look it up and you look at some of these videos and things like that. And it, of course there's no medical basis to it. And One of the things that struck me is why would, if there was a miracle cure for an an incurable condition, why would we deny that if that existed? We want children cured as much as the parents do. Of course we would want a cure. And, but we know in medicine, sometimes there aren't, and that's difficult for families for patients and for us. So I just, that whole idea of a disconnect, like we want the same thing. So why would we hide something? You know, if we could have something that would cure these diseases, we would do it. But then I think about, you know, another case that I had. This was years ago in medical school. And this was a middle-aged woman who came in to the hospital. And I saw them in the emergency room. This was my general surgery rotation, okay? And the person was emaciated, okay? And they were jaundiced, which means there's something wrong with their liver. I was meeting the person, this this woman, and going through their chart. And it turns out this woman had... Been diagnosed with early stage colon cancer. Okay.
0: When was that diagnosis compared to when you saw her? How, how about a
1: up? year beforehand?
0: A year before. Okay. And in
1: fact, they were scheduled for surgery a year ago and they just didn't show up the day of the operation. They just didn't show up. And then there's no follow up with a doctor at the hospital I was at for a full year. And then they come into the hospital on this day. And already, now that I know the backstory, I'm like, this cancer has spread. It wasn't treated at the time because, you know, we've talked about colon cancer and that can be treated if you have surgery early on. So we got to talking and first of all, the patient was very sick. Uh, Like I said, emaciated, jaundiced. And this part is very graphic. So if you want to skip ahead 30 seconds, you can. When we examined them, it, clearly, they had colon cancer and it had spread so much, the tumor was coming out of their rectum and anus. And so this person was doing extremely badly. Clearly, the tumor was in the liver and it spread everywhere. And as we talked to them, we said, well, what happened? You didn't show up for the surgery. No, you know, I met a practitioner who was saying they could cure this with natural products. And... They were doing injections of some sort of flower or pollen or something like that in the groin once a week for several weeks. And they were told, no, this will cure you. And because of that, they had their, put their faith in this person and they didn't see a doctor. And then now they're at this this stage with a cancer that spread. Obviously this treatment didn't work. And then the person died two weeks later, had three young boys and left without a mother. So then I think about this practitioner and, you know, again, I I try and rationalize this in my head. So what would possess somebody, you know? And again, I don't know. Maybe this practitioner was saying, no, no, you need to go see a doctor. You need to go see a doctor and insisting that they go. I don't know. You know, I think someone who is promising a cure, because when someone is diagnosed with cancer or your children are diagnosed with an incurable disease, You would do anything, right? You would spend a million dollars. You would probably even die for your children, right? I would. Those people are so desperate for anything. And if you're coming to them saying, no, I have the miracle cure when it doesn't exist, there's only two possibilities, in my opinion, for the people who are promising these miracle cures. Either you're completely delusional and you think this will work when it doesn't and then thereby endangering people's lives. Or you're a snake oil salesman. You know it doesn't work, and you're doing this to make a profit out of people in their most desperate time in their lives. And that's disgusting. It's the lowest form of life, if that's in fact what you're doing. So that's basically what I'm saying about miracle cures. That's 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 kind of my thoughts on this whole idea of miracle cures, because again, if there was a miracle cure for a patient, we would do it. And again, maybe the average doctor, but once you're seeing a specialist or a subspecialist or a super specialist, we know the scientific literature. That's what we have to do every day.
0: Look, you're talking from the place of a of not just a doctor, but a but a decent human being. And I think, of course, that that doctor you're speaking of, snake oil salesman, that's an absolute vulture. Yeah, I don't know being. if that
1: person was a doctor, by the way. Oh yeah, I don't think they were just, of some yeah. kind. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, that's a vulture. And by the way, I heard a conversation recently, Margaret Atwood, saying vultures get a bad rap because there are some great, wonderful vultures out there. You know which vultures I'm talking about. The worst kind. At some level, you've got to understand this distrust of doctors that exist. Number one... As you said, desperate times call for desperate measures. People are in the worst place, and they're looking for anything, right? And so I know you've probably heard some of this. Uh, what about this? Why didn't you try this? You know, look. My father was on, you know, life support. He was on a heart and lung machine keeping him alive. Personally, we didn't want to see that. My father was a man of great integrity. We were like, yeah, we'll we'll wait a few days. Maybe something will happen. No, nothing's happening. We were we were ready to sort of unplug. But you know, of families who wait years while their loved one is in a vegetative state. And while that's not me, I can understand you're so desperate. You want so... But as a medical practitioner, as a doctor, you're like, listen, this person's not coming back. That's all the science points to that. But then you have these Aberrations that have happened once every 10 years or something. So people are like, they hold out this hope. So there's one is this this hope and this desperation. But number two, listen, man, your industry has also been guilty of a lot of terrible stuff over the years. Look, if one person knows somebody who has a birth defect because of thalidomide, okay? Now that's going back to the 1960s, but that's a product that was approved for women, no problem during pregnancy. People are born with birth defects. So now you're like, oh, I tr- trusted the medical industry and now I have whatever horrible birth defect that I've had to live with. Now if you're the children, you're the grandchildren of that person, you're the neighbor of that person, that now spreads distrust, right? Like distrust and look, we could do a whole episode on the pharmaceutical industry alone and and things that they've done to push through stuff, you know, for profit. We Absolutely should do an episode on that. But I mean, I think you understand at some level, it's not just you. It's, it's it's a distrust in a system and it shouldn't be called distrust of doctors. As you say, you guys want the best for these patients as well. Why wouldn't she want? Why would you want to see a family and their child in distress?
1: It's complicated. Healthcare delivery involves financial matters by definition, and that causes complications. Whether it's in Canada, where we have you know socialized medicine, and it's the government restricting funds and how that affects people. In the US, we know HMOs or health maintenance organizations, they're for-profit. And again, when you have one of these big players in the healthcare system being for-profit, that can generate skepticism because they don't always have what's in the best interests of uh of patients. No, of course. You know, in Canada, you know, people waiting two years for surgery or for an MRI scan, like that's not in the best interest of patients, right? So you can see why that occurs. And I do accept that I think distrust of the medical profession is going up. There's a great article by Drove Cooler in the New York Times in 2018.
0: Instead of insulting his South Asian heritage, you could say Kular because it's Dhruv Kular is who it is, and K H U L L A R, if anyone wants to look up that article. Good
1: thing I'm not doing an accent.
0: In <laughs> yes, this. It is a good thing.
1: Basically, he was saying how things have changed with medical trust. In, in 1966, three quarters of Americans had great confidence in their medical leaders, and in 2018, only about a third did. And it's lower than people in other developed countries. When you look at North America versus other developed countries, this trust has been declining over time. And he gives a bunch of examples, a study that said like two thirds of patients with high levels of trust always take their prescribed medications. And if you have low levels of trust, only 14% do. Another study found that trust of your doctor is one of the best predictors of things like how much you exercise, your smoking cessation, even condom use. We know that people skip vaccinations or skip the flu shot or the measles vaccine if they don't have trust in their doctors. And the most damning statement in this article from 2018 was, perhaps most concerning is evidence that low levels of trust can weaken the ability of governments and public health agencies to respond to epidemics
0: and pandemics. And that was written in 2018.
1: Yeah. And what do you see?
0: these days right i don't know if it was this article or another because I, I read a number of articles when i was just sort of preparing to hear you speak about this but somebody was drawing some parallels between a trust of your government and trust of the medical uh, you know system at large as well and both are down But, you know, the same thing. It's like, you can't blame us. You can't blame us. You can't blame the voting public when so many corrupt officials have come through. You can't be like, oh, look at voter apathy. These young kids, they don't care. Because they're not even telling a lie when they say, well, whoever we vote in, it's all going to be the same thing. These people are in it for themselves and they don't have the interest of the citizenry at heart. People are getting jaded for a reason. It's not for no reason.
1: You know, there's... Another level to this, we talked about race earlier on this episode when we talked about accents, there's this whole issue about race and distrust of medicine. And I think you're seeing it a lot these days with uh, COVID vaccination rates and, and uptake. Again, I'm just going to be honest, you and I are definitely not experts in this issue of medical distrust and race. There are some good resources. And one of the best ones is this book called A Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. And that's by Harriet A. Washington from 2006. So if you want to read more about that, I suggest you do. But again, it chronicles not the, probably the most famous example is the Tuskegee experiments and, you know, which occurred in Alabama. And essentially, for those of you who don't know, it was essentially not treating African-American patients with syphilis to study the natural history of the, of the disease. And so it's a horrible and disgusting, period, uh, an occurrence in, in medicine in North America, and one that we can't forget.
0: While you're on that subject, I really do encourage everyone to look at the, the history of Indigenous health in Canada, and it's not dissimilar from what the African-Americans have gone through. It's the same. And when you read about it, you're like, yeah, the distrust exists for a very good reason. Every time somebody came in peddling some kind of cure or, 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 or some, you know, quick fix to some health issues, often they were getting uh, wool pulled over their eyes.
1: Yeah. And uh, j- just with regards to this indigenous issue, so I think Canadians are often, they like to point at America and say, you know, we don't have problems with racism. That's an American problem. Well, and that, that that is, that's
0: why I jumped in to say that exactly, because let's not let's not fool ourselves here.
1: Yeah, there's so many examples, but there's this recent example uh, late last year of Joyce Etchiquan, and I hope I'm saying her name properly. It was a Quebec hospital that she was in, and she filmed and posted to social media the the hospital staff literally insulting her to her face. Literally. And then she died shortly thereafter. And just showing the systemic racism that Indigenous people face in specifically the healthcare system in Canada. It was a sad, very sad story and and very angering to a lot of people in Canada, just really showing how, just one example of how Indigenous people are treated by the healthcare system here. And so I I think, again, there's many people who've spoken about this, and I encourage everyone to, to read up about it. But again, you can't always take racism away from it. There's also a great article the New York Times, 2020, uh, by Austin Fracht, Frakt, F R A K T, I believe I'm pronouncing that properly, which which examines this a bit more. So I encourage people to to take a look at that.
0: On a related note, if anybody's been watching Saturday Night Live lately, you know, Michael Che uh, told a joke that was. Quite real. He was saying that, you know, I've got mixed feelings about the vaccine. On the one hand, I'm black. So naturally, I don't trust it. On the other hand, I'm on a white TV show. So I might actually get the real one. And uh, that's one of those jokes that you laugh and you go, we really shouldn't as a society be laughing at that because that is just so real. But anyway, Asif, just to sort of wrap this up, what can be done? this mistrust
1: you know some people even say that mistrust is victim blaming so maybe we shouldn't even use the word mistrust because it puts the onus on the community uh, who is mistrusting? Totally on board with that. Exactly. The problem was with us in medicine, so maybe we have to uh, do better. And there's a great article by the Commonwealth Fund uh, from January of 2021, which talks about this. Great interviews. A really good piece. I suggest we'll, we'll put a link to that, but I suggest people take a look at it. So, in this 2018 article in the Times, they said a couple of things that medical leaders and public health officials need to do. You have to answer these fundamental questions. A, do you know what you're doing? B, will you tell me what you're doing? And C, are you doing it to help me or help yourself? And if you can reassure people with the answers to all those questions, then you're gonna be further ahead. A lot of this is simple things, communicating with your patients, obviously that's probably the most important thing, letting people have access to their charts, even still it's a big debate about whether people can access their charts, of course they can, it's their medical record, they are entitled to it, but there's still arguments against that. So I'll just maybe mention like five or six things that we need to remember Everybody in healthcare, not patients. I think we have to take the onus on healthcare to try and make some of these changes. So one is treating patients as experts in their own disease because they know their experience, right? I always tell people this. We see kids who come into the hospital who have lots of medical problems. Maybe they have a genetic disease and they're followed by a neurologist and a kidney doctor and surgeons and all this stuff. And Instead of you telling this family who probably has whose kid has a rare disease, they're the experts on it. They know about it, right? So let them tell you. It's not you always telling them. I mean, again, you, I'm talking about other physicians and healthcare workers. Uh, the second thing is people suggest you use empathy and not information. So for example, in vaccine hesitancy, which we can certainly talk about if you want, Ali, on a, on a future episode— They've talked about like giving people stacks and stacks of papers and studies. They don't really care about that, but they just want to be listened to and have their worries heard. And when you actually do that, more people will end up uh, getting vaccinated. Building relationships outside exam rooms. I always try with my teenage patients to ask them, you know, how they're doing what's going on in school. What do they want to be? I always say when they grow up, but they're already grown ups essentially, when I'm seeing them as teenagers. Uh, what are they doing outside of school? You know, these things, these, these conversations are important. And then probably the fourth thing is institutional changes. So actually focusing on patient-centered care, not profits, and not trying to squeeze every dollar (laughs) out of the system, you know, to compare the U.S. and Canada and making things affordable, et cetera. And maybe the last thing I'll, I'll just suggest again is there's lots of more things that you could do to kind of help with this distrust, but creating safe and welcoming environments, right? And when we're talking about, for example, the LGBTQ plus community, we wanna make sure that members of that community feel welcome, you know? So no judgment when you come in, everyone is welcomed, paying attention to pronouns, their people's preferred pronouns and things like that. You want everybody to feel comfortable accessing care, because if they don't, they just won't access it. And that's not good for the individual health care and for health care at a larger level in a country or in the world.
0: Good luck to you, Asif, in practicing all of that. We're ready, as speaking from the perspective of the general uh, public, we are ready for all of that. We welcome uh, every single one of those five. Teams.
1: Yeah, you're the representative of John Q. Public, so.
0: I'm John Q. Public over here. Now, John Q. Public is uh, is going to sign off. Uh, we're coming to the end of our show. Thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in uh, digging down into the any of these articles we mentioned, we will be posting them on our website, com. so you can find them there. We're also on social media, Doctor. V Comedian on all uh, social media sites, right? Places, vehicles, platforms.
1: Absolutely. Reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't like. Any advice for future episodes? And just one thing to remember in all of our episodes, this is for information and entertainment. We're not providing any medical advice. And if you have any concerns, you should always go see your medical practitioner.
0: And of course, Asif, very important. Everyone listening, don't fall in love with us we are both married men okay i thought that was worth mentioning that's my own personal
1: especially experience. you shonda rhymes
0: yeah
1: see you guys next week